0: Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to jump in here. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as we've learned thus far, uh, we join here Jesus and his disciples sitting on that Galilean hillside as Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which is instruction that began with a series of statements that we know as the Beatitudes, various statements of blessing, uh, essentially if-then statements. If the person lives their life this way, or if the person adopts this attitude or behavior, then they will be blessed. That's where we began in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That's what kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, all of which helps us to develop a kingdom perspective. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about a person who is in right relationship with God and what their life should look like. It's the longest single sermon or instruction that we have from Jesus in Scripture, and it is truly revolutionary. Let's, for the sake of beginning here today, read together verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word here now this morning we've spent time worshiping you in song offering lord our praises to you in an act of surrender availing ourselves to you and now we come to your word lord and our ask this morning is that by your spirit you'd give us instruction you'd give us understanding lord you would help us to see what it is that you have for us and what you desire of us lord and that we would be willing lord to allow you to do that work in our lives to expose things to transform things to have the place of preeminence in our hearts, Lord, to sit on the throne of our hearts. do that work here this morning, Lord, I pray and draw us near to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time we were together in the Sermon on the Mount, which is now two weeks ago, thank you to Pastor Bobby for teaching last week. I appreciate him filling in and no doubt you did as well. Um, Last time, though, we were here in the Sermon on the Mount, we considered verses 13 through 16, which is the exhortation for believers to be salt and light. That as Christians, we are called to be salt in this world, salt that serves as a preservative for our culture, salt that serves as a flavoring in a decaying and bland culture. We're called also here in scripture to be light and darkness to allow our life and to allow our works to be on display, not for our glory, but for his glory. Whether it's received well, whether people see that and are attracted to it, or whether they reject it and we receive persecution or experience persecution, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change how we should live our lives. We want to live it in obedience to scripture. And ultimately, when we are truly living for Christ, not for this world, there will be persecution. Scripture is clear about that. I mentioned two Sundays ago five things that should characterize the church today, which in our culture seem to be very polarizing, unfortunately. Nevertheless, we should be demonstrating these things as the church. We should be demonstrating a concern for biblical ethnic reconciliation. We should be demonstrating a care for the poor. We should be demonstrating a commitment to forgiveness as opposed to retaliation. We should be demonstrating a care for life, all life from womb to the tomb, which means standing for the unborn. We should be demonstrating and upholding a biblical sexual ethic that upholds traditional marriage and the distinction of male and female as created by God. And and knowing these things and knowing that the church even has become polarized on these things, we know that that it's difficult We know that when we stand for all of these things, not just some of these things, that we'll be received by some and rejected by others. Further, we know about these things that we won't find all of these things on one side of the ballot come November, which reinforces for us that our hope and our trust is not in the authorities of this world, but in the authority over all the heavens and earth. That our trust is in him, And we will live for him even when it's hard. You see, we don't just pretend to be for him. We can't be a people that on the outside and just a few days a week act a certain way or strive to look a certain way. But our lives need to be changed. We need to be a sold out, surrendered people who take the word of God seriously. And that does not mean, listen, seriously doesn't mean legalistically. It means, like Paul writes in Colossians in chapter 3, verse 16, that we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, the Word should dwell in us. Dwell means it's at home in you. You love it. You let it sink in. You let it transform you like the washing of the water of the Word, as Paul speaks about in Ephesians 5.26. And as that washing of the water of the Word comes over you, it begins to transform your mind like we read about in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that we aren't conformed to this world anymore, but we be, become transformed and we're able to live out the word, which then testifies to his good and perfect will in this world. You see, this is what Jesus wants of his disciples. And, and many people questioned whether Jesus was in fact serious. They questioned whether he was truly teaching the word because he taught it differently than the Pharisees, yet with authority, But Jesus was and is serious about his word. And we encounter that then as we continue in the verses I read in verses 17 through 20 as he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. I want us to pause here for a moment and consider this. We need to understand a few things about what Jesus says here. He says that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. You see, some were curious about this. After all, Jesus was laying the groundwork for a new covenant. But yet he says, "I didn't come to abolish; I came to fulfill." You see, Jesus could have said. I love the Word of God, and we need to do what it says, and people would have said, okay, amen. Or he could have said, I'm going to live it out. I've come, and I'm going to live out the Word. I'm going to keep it perfectly. And some people would have said, well, that's, that's a, great, it's a great endeavor, wonderful goal. And the Pharisees would have said, that, that's blasphemy. You can't keep it perfectly. That would have been enough for the Pharisees to, to rend their garments. But no, Jesus, as he always does, he takes it to the next level. He doesn't say, I think it's great, we should keep it. He doesn't say, I'm gonna keep it. He says, I embody it. The word that you know, it's me. Now, this is consistent with what John tells us in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, come in the flesh. But for the religious leaders of the day, that is absolute blasphemy. And for us, we need to understand something here, and this is the reason why I point to this. Jesus here does not claim to be a good guy. He doesn't claim to be a good teacher, which many people want to chalk him up as, people who don't believe in Jesus. I think he was a good guy. I think he was a good teacher. No, Jesus making this statement declares one of three things. Jesus is either crazy, he's evil, or he's God. And if he's God, there are some consequences to what he says. And he goes on to say, Not one word will pass away. Every word stands, okay? And so far to date, he's right. There's nothing that anybody can look at in the word of God. They can attempt to, but they won't be successful to say, well, this isn't true, or this can't be. The only thing that remains in scripture are things which are yet to come to pass. The yod, as he refers to here, that's the smallest word in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, And the tittle is the equivalent of, we'll say, the, the, the dot on the I or the tail on a Q. What Jesus is saying here is every bit of it, every little letter will come to pass. None of it will pass away. And so as he makes that claim and that claim is proved out, it only points back to the fact that he is who he says he is. And so furthermore, then it's not only that it is prophetically accurate, meaning that it predicts certain things that have come to pass and will come to pass, but that every word stands, which means we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to do your Bible study with a Sharpie instead of a highlighter, but many people have. Oh, I don't like that. That makes me feel bad. I don't like to feel bad. I don't want to be told that I'm this or I'm that. And so they ignore it. We don't get to do that. We don't get to take away from it, and we don't get to add to it either. You see, taking away from Scripture was the fault of the Sadducees, and removing Scripture, taking away from Scripture, leads to liberalism. Show me anybody who has removed portions of Scripture, and I will show you somebody who is liberal in their theology. In the same vein, adding to scripture was the fault of the Pharisees and it leads to legalism. What we need to understand is that it's his word and his word alone and we are called to abide by it. Even when we don't like it and even when it's hard. Now in light of that then, and and the reason I'm going through this is because we need to understand why Jesus is teaching what he's teaching. All of this goes together. And so in light of this, Jesus says if you do what the word says, you will be great. And if you don't, you'll be the least in the kingdom. And we need to ask ourselves, do I take that seriously? Am I taking his word seriously? Now this can all be confusing because the Beatitudes dealt with humility, right? But this seems to breed pride. If I wanna be, well, I wanna be great in the kingdom and so I wanna do all these things and that's in our nature to do that, right? There's a prize, wait, what? There's a trophy, I want it. What do I have to do to be first? And so it can be a little confusing here, but that's only if we start to adopt the mindset that we've actually kept all of his word. And that's what he then goes on to address, right? Which is why here Jesus goes on to show us the real heart of the law. He says in verse 20, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I know we've dealt with this already in our study of Matthew, but it's important to consider again. And you might look at this and say, well, hold up for a second. I thought the Pharisees were legalistic and they added to scripture and I've got to work to be more righteous than them? You see, Jesus, he did, in fact, call out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, and that's what's important for us to understand. Theirs was a fake righteousness. Jesus, in Matthew, in chapter 23, in verses 25 through 28, says, and I paraphrase, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You're a dirty cup. It's clean on the outside and looks really nice, but it's filthy on the inside. You're like a whitewashed tomb. It, It looks pretty and it looks clean, but inside are just dead bones. That is what man's effort at righteousness gets us a picture of something that's nice, but inside it's dirty and it's dead. So yes, we are to be more righteous than that. Not a false righteousness, but a real righteousness. A real right standing before God. And this comes not in our own strength, but in that which comes through Christ. Romans chapter three, verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe or in philippians in chapter 3 verse 9 it says not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in christ the righteousness which is from god by faith so you see we need to be transformed through faith and made righteous but when we are not only is heaven now our inheritance but our lives should look different faith should lead to a transformed life Now this is tough because our flesh is still kicking, right? Even when we believe in Jesus and we want to begin to live life the way that he wants us to live it, we, like living sacrifices as we're called to make, we throw our lives on the altar, but because it's a living sacrifice, it starts to crawl off, right? And every day we do that. We throw our life back on the altar and then we wiggle our way off. I don't want to be up here anymore, right? That's us. And we've still got a little of that... uh, Pharisee in us. You could almost say we're accidental Pharisees. We just kind of slip back into it. And Jesus addresses that as he continues. He says, I've made you righteous. And you believe in me? I've made you righteous. But that means you've got to start looking at things differently the way I look at it. You see, God desires an inward heart change that leads to obedience. But we're good at convincing ourselves that we're good enough, Right? Think of the rich young ruler in Matthew in chapter 19. Uh, In Matthew 19, it's in verse 16. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, we're a lot like that. We say, but Lord, I've done these things. But even Jesus says, well, why, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. Immediately, he begins to correct this young man in terms of his perspective at, as to what is good. Jesus elevates the standard And, you know, we have our different things we do, but but what is it that the Lord wants to do in your life? As you begin to evaluate what Jesus is doing, as he's made you righteous and now he's sanctifying you and beginning to transform your life. For each of us, there may be something different in our lives that we say, well, I'm doing all of these things, but yet God says, yeah, but there's this thing I want. There's this thing in your life that I want you to let me have. And we go on convincing ourselves that we're okay, but Jesus says, you have to look at things my way. Now, it's interesting as we move on here in verses 21 through the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to deal with five different things. He's going to touch on murder, adultery, marriage, oaths, and enemies. Now, we should kind of ask ourselves, okay, if the Old Testament law has 613 laws, he could have chosen any of them. What about boiling a goat in milk or something like that, right? There's something about that in Leviticus. Why did not you touch on that one? All these laws he could choose from, why does he choose these? Go back to salt and light. Remember, this is all within the context of his message. He says we're called to be salt and light in this world, which means we're not to go and hide. We're to be in the world. We know our directive as believers in this world is to reach others for him, for his glory, to make disciples, right? Well, these five things, they're all about relationships. It's about our relationships with other people. We're not called to isolation, friends. We are called to love others. And what Jesus does here is he takes these commandments and the way the world looks at these commands and he says, no, this is, this is what it really means. And this is how, it, how it's going to affect how you interact with others in this world. Look at the end of this chapter in verse 48. It says, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, you see, that's, that seems to be a, a pretty... Serious exhortation there. And for us, it's important that we understand here at the end of what really is this this thought for Jesus, this portion of his message, that, that this commandment to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect is an exhortation that's rooted in understanding his perspective on relationships. It comes at the end of him, as we'll read here shortly, saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Again, elevating the standard, flipping the script, changing our perspective on things, coming all the way to the end where he says, you need to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect, and that's rooted in relationships. It's rooted in loving others the way that he loves us. In 2 John, in verse 5, it says, Now I plead with you that we love one another. I plead with you that we would love one another. In Romans, in Romans, in chapter 13, in verses 8 through 10, Paul writes this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law see, as Jesus starts to delve into here, the law, what he wants us to understand is we've got to look at the law through the eyes of him, through the Father, and to understand that it's fulfilled in love. It's about relationships. It's about how we treat one another. Or in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verse 8, where it says that love covers a multitude of sins. And so we as Christians, right, we say, yeah, totally agree. We've got to love people, right? have to love one another. And if someone said, well, have you ever murdered anyone? Well, hopefully you would say, no way. All right, my goodness. Why would you ask me that? Or have you ever cheated on your wife? No, man, I love my wife. But Jesus, just like when he said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, he cries out to you, Christian, saying, how's your heart? How's your heart as it relates to these things? Has it been transformed? He says, I want to show you how to love. I want to show you what I see and how I think. I want to transform you. And so we read in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said. And this is the way that Jesus is going to teach the remainder of this section. And this really speaks to oral tradition. What he's, what he's referencing here is oral tradition. Meaning that at this time, as the religious leaders taught the law, again, in some cases, adding to and subtracting from, they would say, this is how you keep the law. This was man's understanding of the application of the law. You heard it said. So he says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And no doubt, everybody who was sitting there at that point said, well, yeah, absolutely, that's what we've heard. Yep, don't murder people. And then in Jesus, in verse 22 says, but I say to you. And so Jesus, with authority, says, I'm going to tell you something different. You could almost translate this. The world says this, but God says this. What Jesus does here is he says, let me show you the spirit of the law. What it's really getting at that it's not just about the action and then you check a box but it's about evaluating your heart and so he says but i say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment now jesus is certainly not saying here that murder is the same as anger okay we've got to understand that but what we must get is that jesus wants to transform your heart. And the fact is, this is where murder begins. Anger, if you will, is the gateway drug for murder. If left unchecked, it leads to more and more severe things. And if we allow him to change our heart and to guard our hearts against these things, then we will learn to see others the way that he does and to love people the way that he does. We don't just go through life thinking, I can't murder people. Just remember this. I got. I got. I got to constantly remember. Don't murder somebody. No. What he calls us to do is to go through life and to say, Lord, don't let anger consume my heart. Don't let hatred consume my heart. You remember the beggar on the temple steps? As as Peter was coming up to the temple, he was lame. He'd been laying there for as long as anybody could remember, asking for a handout. He just wanted a few pennies. And and as Peter's coming by, he's drawn to him, being led of the Spirit, and he asks him for a handout, and he says, silver and gold I do not have. What I do have I give to you. Rise and walk. Why do I mention that? You see, that beggar that day was ready to do what he has always done, ask for pennies and just get by. But God, in in his grace and his goodness, had so much more for him That he never really asked for but again in grace he gave it to him and his life was transformed you see we have to look at it it's easy for people to look at these passages of scripture and just say see it's just a bunch of commandments it's just a bunch of you got to do this and you can't do this and this is why i don't want anything to do with this religion stuff and that totally misses the point for us as believers and for anybody for that matter we should look at these things and go this is exactly the same as the beggar we are so willing to go through life and just say, well, just don't do this. Instead of saying, Lord, search my heart. Show me, Lord, what life lived for you really looks like. Lord, take me to that next level. Lord, sh- help me to see things the way that you see things. But no, people say, well, I have not murdered," and I'm just going to go through life angry and bitter. There's enough of that in our world today, isn't there? There's no shortage of anger right now. Maybe we ought to be a people who say, Lord, don't let any." Anger, consume me. Jesus says you should want more. Let me transform who you are. Let me show you my standard and my righteousness and let me make it yours. And so I'd ask your friends, who is your enemy today? Who are you angry with today? You need to put that to rest. Scripture says, and whoever says to his brother, raka, which this is a weird word, it's sort of the equivalent of saying, you fool or you idiot. And some say you can't even really translate it. It's maybe more of a nonverbal. It's sort of an eye roll towards somebody. If you do that, it says you'll be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. He says we need to seek to reconcile things quickly. There should be a sense of urgency to as much as possible, as Romans 2.16 says, to be at peace with one another. Friends, the forgiven should be forgiving. Now, I'm gonna move quickly here through the rest of these. Um, I debated today as to what we would consider, but I think it's important in light of communion and in light of just understanding the context of this chapter, we're gonna move somewhat quickly through these, and we could delve deep into each of the rest of these commandments that he gives. Certainly, we could make a study out of each of them on their own, but for the sake of today, we're not going to do that. He says here, as we continue on in verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, he elevates the standard. In verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Essentially what he says here is you think because you've not had an affair, an extramarital affair, that you're good. But again, look at the heart. Are you lustful? What is it that you look at? What is it that you think about? Are you turning your eyes away from these things and not letting desire set into your heart? Like anger that turns into murder, what does unchecked lust turn into? Again, Jesus wants to take us to that higher level to see things the way that he does. And then, are you willing to take drastic measures to remove sin and the temptation to sin from your life? Now, Jesus here uses hyperbole, okay? Hyperbole is sort of a, uh, an extreme example, but not something that's necessarily to be done as it's described. Well, shouldn't I take this literal? <laughs> listen, listen. Scripture should be studied and applied literally. But we also come to certain places where we need to take all of Scripture into context. We need to consider what's being said. And so no, I'm not encouraging anyone today to go home and cut off their hand or gouge out their eye. Okay? Let that be said. Here's the problem. Because if you did that, would you suddenly not sin anymore? Nope. See, that's why we've got to look at this and go, okay, that's maybe not exactly what Jesus meant here. Because you can gouge out your eyes and you can still lust. That's the terrible thing about these fallen bodies, right? That's why we look forward to glory when we'll be redeemed. What Jesus is saying here is, are you serious about ridding yourselves of the things in your life that lead you into sin? What measure do you need to take? What is it that you need to get rid of? Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we'll deal with this topic further uh, later in Matthew. We'll get back to the topic of marriage and divorce and sort of a biblical ethic on that. What we need to know about this passage here today is this. In Old Testament or under Old Testament law, divorce had become very uh, liberal to the detriment of women and children. What do I mean by liberal? It was easy. You could get divorced just like that and just about for any reason. And I kid you not when I say, even if your wife burnt the dinner, here's your certificate of divorce. That's ridiculous, okay? That's absolutely ridiculous. And so we talk a lot today about divorce being common. Fact is, it was just as common throughout Old Testament history and in the early first century church. This is why Jesus is addressing this here. So Jesus now is working to bring sanctity back to the marriage and saying, listen, you can't just get divorced for any reason. Marriage means something. But it also shows that while God always desires that a marriage be reconciled, always, that is what, and let me say that again, I've been a part of considerable, a number of different situations in marriage counseling, that no matter what has happened, if two parties are willing to glorify the Lord through reconciliation, that's what the Lord desires. Okay. but let it also be known here that Jesus does say, except for sexual immorality, which should show us the severity of it, right? So again, Jesus takes the law through man's perspective and then he shows us God's. He's developing for us a kingdom ethic. He says in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. What does your word mean to other people? It was the case where under Old Testament law that they would swear on a variety of of, of different things. I I swear on Jerusalem, right? And they would have different ways in which they could get out of that oath. Okay, there was a lot of oath making. And there was a lot of making oaths with their fingers kind of crossed behind their back, if you will, right? Or like, we'll we'll, we'll pinky swear on it, okay? And then you break it and you're like, I only pinky sweared. It's not like I swore on the Bible. Okay, that, that was sort of how they viewed things. There was differing degrees. But What does Jesus say? It's all mine. There's nothing that you can swear on that doesn't belong to me. Whether it's your pinky, or whether it's on the city, or whether it's on God himself, it's all mine. So he says, don't stop this whole swearing thing, as in terms of making an oath, but you could apply it in the other way too, and just let your yes be Yes. And you're no, no. You know, I trust there's probably many people that would say, you know, in my day, a man's word meant something. I've heard that before. There's no reason why it can't mean something again. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay. A slap on the cheek. This was not somebody coming and, and punching you, okay? And this is not something to say that it, under any circumstances we can't defend ourselves. A slap on the cheek is really an insult. That was a way in which an insult was delivered. Stupid. It's pretty harsh. <laughs> you can't go around slapping people on the on the cheek these days. the The point here is that if someone does that, are you willing to just turn the other cheek and to say, I'm not gonna let my ego get in the way? Yeah. If someone's insulting you, can you just take it and turn the other cheek? Trust in the Lord to fight for you? If someone sought to sue someone and, and take possession, of which there were fewer possessions at that time, and quite frankly, I'd, I didn't delve into this one too much and I've never fully understood you know, how a successful outcome of a lawsuit was someone's tunic. Um, Nevertheless, those were the rules, and you could only go for the tunic, which was sort of the blouse of the day. You couldn't take their coat. That's just, you've just gone too far, okay? You can have my shirt, you can't have my coat. Or under Roman law, one can be compelled by a soldier to carry their gear for them up to one mile. Or of course, there's the beggar who you say, man, you're just going to spend it on garbage and walk on by. You see, every one of these applications really brings us back to how far are you willing to go to glorify the Lord, to operate differently than how the world operates. If someone's going to sue you for your tunic, say, here, here, have the coat. It's okay because I want to be reconciled to you. I don't want to be, I don't want to have anger. I don't want to, or if the Roman soldier says, here, carry my stuff, say, hey, bro, let's go too. I'm going to bless you today, right? Jesus elevates it to another level. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, this first saying here, what Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. All the other times, it was rooted in Scripture, but applied sort of differently. This one you can't even really find in Scripture. <laughs> Nowhere does it say, and you can hate your enemy. They just developed that one all on their own. And so Jesus says, you guys have been living this way, but I say, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And this is hard to do. Listen, we can hear it, we can listen to it, but when we have to practically apply it, we become really good at convincing ourselves why we don't have to do it because of the injustice that's been demonstrated towards us. And when we do that, we immediately forget, we immediately forget what Jesus has done for us and the humility that he has demonstrated. He goes on to say, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. It's often been said, you've heard this before, that bitterness and anger is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. If we go around just loving those who love us, if we go around just hanging out with the people who like us, if we never give any consideration to to those who are unlike us, who don't like us, who, who don't love us, whatever the case may be, and instead are just simply angry towards them, you're going to be one bitter person, especially when you start to see that the sun shines on them too right? Like, man, that'll, that'll eat you up. Lord, why do you bless them? You know what they've done to me? And what does Jesus say? I told you to love them, to pray for them. Again, he takes us to a kingdom ethic. We are so quick to justify our actions. And our world today is filled with people who are angry with one another and hurtful toward one another and taking sides and feeling justified in it. And the world's ethic says you're right, you're justified in this. But the kingdom ethic says no. God says this is not the spirit of the law. It's better than this. You're called to be different. You're called to be like me. And there we find ourselves in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I'm gonna invite the worship team up here to begin to close us out as we take communion. As I alluded to earlier For Jesus here to say you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect means that we understand this perfection as we understand how he views others. It's rooted in relationships. It's rooted in how he loves others. And he calls us to love that same way. We're called to be like him, to see things like he does and to act like he does and to love like he does. Yet as we compare our lives to this, perhaps we find that we've come up wanting a little bit. And let me tell you, that's good. Let me ask you these questions. Have you ever been angry with someone? Yeah. Have you ever lusted? Mm-hmm. Some people are not shouting that one out as quickly. You ever broken a promise? Congratulations, you're a lying murderer adulterer. We're going to close on that. What was good news? I went to church today. He called me a liar, a murderer, and an adulterer. And you have to stand before God on Judgment Day as one who is righteous in order to inherit eternal life. How do you feel about that? You see, this is the point. This is where Jesus wants us to get to because then if we understand fully everything that he has said instead of rejecting it like some do, we find ourselves going back to the beginning when he just started to speak and in verse three he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And remember what does poor in spirit mean but that we find ourselves in a place before God where we say, Lord, I have nothing. I'm sorry, Lord. In me there is nothing good All I can give you, Lord, is my life. And he says, Yes, give me your life, turn yourself over to me, believe in me, and I'll make you righteous. If you really consider this today, if you've allowed this to sink in, if you've allowed the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount to really really sink in today, that as you come and you take the elements that represent his body and his blood, the means of your righteousness, and right standing with God today, that maybe you take them with a renewed or a refreshed perspective to say that this is not just a religious routine, but an opportunity to reflect on what it is that he's done for you and how significant it is. To know that, Lord, I could not have done this on my own. You did it for me. You made me righteous. And you call me, Lord, to live like you, to be like you, to see things like you, to love like you, Let me pray for you one more time. Lord Jesus, you are good to us. Lord, you care for us in ways that we don't even, we can't even comprehend it, Lord. And we recognize today in your word, Lord, you call us to a higher standard. But one, Lord, that you equip us for. And we won't pretend to in this life, Lord, achieve perfection. But we will trust in you, Lord, day after day to sanctify us and to make us new, to make us different, so that, Lord, we can be salt and light, so that we can stand out in this world for your glory, Lord. So help us, Lord, to be a people not of this world, in this world, but not of it, Lord, living for you. Lord Jesus, you're a great shepherd. Go before us, Lord, lead to guide us. Again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly eBulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.